1: Hi there and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook and today we're talking about making news in global India, media, publics, politics by Sahana Udupa. The book is published by Cambridge University Press and Sahana is a research fellow at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Religious and Ethnic Diversity and will soon be starting a new job as an associate professor at the School of Public Policy at the Central European University in Budapest. So what role does Bangalore's private news culture play in shaping the southern Indian metropolis's ongoing urban transformation? Sahana Udapa's new book answers this question through a fascinating and fine-grained ethnography of the city's bilingual news media. Exploring differences amongst the English language and local language press, class-based civic activism, novelties in newsroom practices and layers of journalistic identities, the book shows the ways in which a certain type of aspiration that has come to characterise certain news outlets conflicts and contends with the visibility of local urban cultures and the struggle for dominance amongst different actors in the news field. It truly is a really wonderful study and I had the pleasure of speaking with Sahana just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Sahana to the podcast. Now, your book is about newspapers, the print media, and urban change in Bangalore, which, of course, is the large southern Indian metropolis that I'm sure most people will know as both an IT outsourcing center and and, and other things as well. But let's dive straight into the big argument at the heart of your book. What does the what does an ethnography of print media tell us about a city like Bangalore?
0: First of all, thank you very much, Ian, for this occasion. And for the excellent forum you've developed to showcase new books in South Asia. Uh, Thanks to the internet media, there are so many exciting avenues to communicate and connect today. Uh, And it's also interesting that media scholars like us not only take media as an object of study, but like many other scholars, more and more engage media, especially social media. So our object of study is also our space to articulate arguments. Uh, It's an intriguing recursive loop, I feel. Anyway, going back to the question on uh, making news in global India, media, public, politics, which is the book that has come out. Um, it is a story on journalists and news media. News is, of course, a daily diet for hundreds and thousands of people in India and across the world. Uh, news uh, is, in fact, the quintessence of modernity, as many people would believe it and a key subject for discussions on public opinion and democracy. Not surprising that there is a large body of scholarship on journalism, but the story in this book is different. Uh, It brings two important and dramatic developments in post-reforms India on a single plane. First, news media's expansion, and second, the transformation of urban landscapes. News and the cities seem to intersect in interesting ways, not just that newspapers reported city news in a different way, but news narratives and the work of journalists looked so central to how cities were transforming. And this intersection is rarely recognized in journalism scholarship. And for urban studies, on the other hand, media reflect the larger processes, but they are not of constitutive salience. Which means, yes, we understand that media are important, but they're only reflecting something that's uh, broader. Making news in global India, it tries to challenge both these perspectives and shows the fascinating ways in which news and the city intersect. I explored the news worlds of Bangalore City, the celebrated Silicon Valley of India, as you mentioned, uh, to unravel this intersection. And I do this with ethnography of newsmaking, something not very common in studies on journalism in India and even within broader scholarship on news, ethnography of news cultures and news practices. I carried out many years of ethnographic fieldwork inside the Times of India group, which is the largest media house in India and also among journalists of different publications. Um, and I went to places where they socialize and gather news. So. This anthropological attention to details and nuances means unsettling some presumptions. Uh, The idea, for example, that greater commercialization will lead to capital takeover of the news agenda, or the opposite claim, that commercial media will lead to liberal choice and diverse opinions. Making news in global India goes beyond this divide by charting the cultural and social worlds of journalists and the journalistic field. And it shows how caste and language ideologies as cultural logics of news shape what we might call the news urban dialectic. So I build on ethnographic exploration. And uh, with this, the book develops two theoretical formulations, uh, what what I call the desired visibility disjunction and the bhasha media, uh, which we hope will be one more step towards de-westernizing media theory and which I also hope will provide analytical tools to examine news media's salience for late capitalism's global urbanization. Mm -hmm. So the book lays out this theory and ethnographic material with an introduction, five body chapters and a concluding chapter. So this is more or less what the book is all about
1: wonderful that's and that's a, a great framing. i I really enjoyed reading it and I'm looking forward to to talking about some of the the details of the book. But before we do that, just to, could you give the readers a little bit of information uh, sorry, the listeners a little bit of information about yourself? What's your academic background, and why did print media interest you?
0: Okay, uh, I grew up in the city of Bangalore uh, in a family of Indian classical musicians and poets. And I worked in Bangalore as a bilingual journalist working for English and Kannada News Media. And I was also involved in an academic project on Bangalore City headed by Carol Padia. So the choice of the research topic, you know, news media and, and Bangalore City was just so natural and obvious for me. Right. Because I grew up in the city had worked as a journalist in the city. So when I joined the Ph.D. program at the National Institute of Advanced Studies in Bangalore and also started studies at the Annenberg School of Communication, a school for communication uh, at the University of Pennsylvania as a visiting scholar, I was fortunate to get um, right academic advice at the right time uh, from Karel Sundar Sarukai, A.R. Vasavi, Paula Chakravarti, Monroe Price, Barbie Zeliza, Michael Shudson, Arvind Rajgopal, And later, media anthropologists who have done fantastic work on Indian news media, uh, Usula Rao, Mark Allen Peterson, uh, and many more, of course. And all my journalist friends, I wish I could name them all, uh, but for positive time. So I had seen the city changing in the 1990s. And this was the time journalism was also undergoing significant shifts. And I saw it. We were in the middle of it all. And therefore... To me, this book had to happen. If you allow me to read from the book, um, sure. uh, I, I quote here This ethnography is not the result of a single, if extended, period of stay in the field as an overdetermined setting for the discovery of difference, to quote Gupta Fagusan. Nor is it an outcome of a series of chance encounters and alliterary relations. It is an ongoing conversation with the city and the news community with whom I grew up as a student, a bilingual journalist, and later an academic researcher in making. From this location of an insider-outsider and all the challenges, limitations, and benefits that come with it, I've tried to get a sense of what news explosion could do for a city like Bangalore and post-colonial cities more generally in the current phase of global capitalism. I should then also admit that this research has been a long process of catharsis. The angst, frustrations and failures of my tryst with journalism remained as a gnawing underside of my fascination for the profession, its ideals, vanity, glamour and unending possibilities, and the city of Bengaluru, its charm and challenges. I have not found these answers yet, but in the process of reflecting upon and exploring journalism and Bengaluru through the enmeshed position of an insider-outsider, I rescue to myself and hopefully for a wider audience, the quotidian realities, everyday sympathies and the profound politics of the two preoccupations closest to my heart. So this probably captures how I feel about the book and what really made me to write what I've written. Mm
1: -hmm. Wonderful. Thank, thank you so much um i was i was i was wondering if you could give us um maybe a bit of um you start in the in the in the in the first chapter i think or in the introduction you give us this this case of the pink cherry campaign in <laughs> uh yeah in bangalore but but about Mangalore. so i was wondering could you give us like could you give us tell us a little bit about this example that, that, and why it's so important for framing your book
0: thank you um This response, I must warn you, Ian, is going to be slightly long, so bear with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I begin the book, as you mentioned, with this ethnographic uh, case. Uh, This was a controversy which uh, erupted somewhere during the middle of my fieldwork. The incident started in the coastal city of Mangalore, which is quite close to the capital city of Bangalore in the South Indian state of Karnataka. A group of male activists from Sri Ram Sena, or Rama's army, a right-wing Hindu nationalist outfit, had barged into a pub, targeting girls who were sipping beer or wine, dragged them out of the pub, beat them up, and chased them out. And to these attackers, it was a war against what they saw as decadent urban modernity, manifest in big cities like Bangalore, and its spillover effects in smaller cities like Mangalore. Mm -hmm. And in making their claims on how the city should look like and behave, Uh, In fact, these male uh, attackers uh, drew upon the gendered rendition of Indian culture, which intricately links questions of sexuality with discourses of nation and tradition. And there is a whole lot of literature that uh, deals with this topic and in in a fantastic way. What was intriguing was that the attacking youth had invited a television crew to join them. So... the the television crew were ready to capture their strong-arm tactics in full detail. So television journalists were present there even before the police, armed with prior knowledge of the attacks and ready with their camera. And thanks to the presence of television journalists, their live coverage of the event, uh, the episode sure enough flared into public view. What followed was even more intriguing, according to me. If the English media's strongly condemned the attacks and upheld women's right to drink, dine, and dance. The regional language media, although with some qualifications, supported the male activist claim that pub visits by women were against our culture. And uh, a group of uh, women in Bangalore, they thought this could only mean more policing of women's cultural and social habits. So they were all e-enabled women. They came together. They called themselves. The Consortium of Pub-Going, loose, and Forward Women. This was the title they gave to their group. And they started this campaign called Pink Chadi Campaign or the Pink Underpants Campaign on Facebook to protest the attacks. So they urged women to send pink underpants to the architect of the attacks and the chief of Sena on Valentine's Day. right? So the protest use of Pink Chadi as a symbol uh, overturned the notion of privacy as a mode of political struggle. But it was also a kind of parodic reference to the brown shorts worn by um, RSS, which is uh, the right-wing internationalist organization in India. And therefore, they're sometimes teased as the cherry Brigade. So pink cherry was a kind of parodic reference to the brown cherry that they wear. So what was equally interesting was uh, their use of the Internet, which enabled these activists to draw support from different parts of the world. And looking at this controversy, we can see that there is this deepening process of mediatization. Right. I mean, the protesters wanted the television crew to come and uh, capture what they were doing. Uh, Therefore, they alerted the television crew even before they went to the police. Um, And then there were women activists who were uh, mobilizing support on the Internet media. And therefore, we could call this a kind of process of mediatization where cultural, social and political spheres become increasingly dependent on the organizational technological, and aesthetic functioning of media in ways that they turn into forms or formats suitable for media representation, to quote Nick Cowdery and Stick Hubbard. So in this controversy, the presence of the television crew and the promise of wide media coverage were not just significant, but by all measure, constitutive of the event. And then there was social media, as I said, which provided a way to organize protest in unexpected ways. So the question is, is this a unique incident, one-off incident? The answer is no, as you and me and many others who've been studying India or living in India know. Increasingly, for better or worse, the expanding media have emerged as an important cultural political force in India, as with the media wave we see in a broader swathe of what is now called the Global South. In India today... The rhythms of everyday life and politics have become inseparable from the cadences of media narratives and the cycles of publicity they provoke. So if you just look at the numbers, uh, the print news media, unlike in the West, newspapers are not dying but multiplying. Newspapers today reach more than 350 million readers and 20 of the world's 100 largest newspapers are Indian. And then the television, satellite and cable, cable television, hugely popular reach close to 70% of households in urban India. And the latest entrant, internet-enabled media, with 350 million internet users, the user base is next only to China and the US. So you see this massive media expansion, which started in the late 1980s, um, of course, fueled by the Indian state's drive for privatization, opening up of markets and media re-regulation, which together ended state monopoly over television, and spurred consumer markets ready to be tapped by domestic and transnational capital. Newspapers of the sort we know, which emerged during the colonial era and played a key role in nationalist struggles against uh, you know, British um, rule, etc., also underwent massive transformation and there was more private capital penetration and also all kinds of you know, investments in the news media. And therefore, today, there is excitement about expanding media as vehicles for citizens' voice. And, e- and also an equally widespread cynicism that media are fully bought over by mighty politicians and businessmen who waste no time to trick the public for selfish gains. So here you see there is the exact as well as cynicism. Mm-hmm. But along with, uh, you know, media expansion and its ambivalent public reception, something else is happening in no small measure. Cities in India are changing and urbanization is unfolding in an equally dramatic way. I feel the city of Bangalore in uh, South India that we have been discussing provides an important window to this transformation. In the 1990s, Bangalore emerged quite unexpectedly, I must say, as the outsourcing hub for the global high-tech economy. It became the Silicon Valley of India and a test case for what liberalization could do in the world's largest democracy, to kind of unleash domestic entrepreneurial energies and ready to take on the best. I mean, this was the narrative, right? And you might, you might remember that the U.S. President Barack Obama warned the American youth of the threat posed by Beijing and Bangalore in the job market. And uh, I was also kind of it was also interesting. The lexicographers made Bangalore a verb. So when I say I'm Bangalore which it means that I have lost my job due to outsourcing. So this Mm. was the kind of, you know, image and the eruption of the city onto the global marketplace uh, was a sign of massive urban transformation underway uh, in Mumbai, Delhi and Pune or Shanghai and Sao Paulo. So therefore, you know, when you go back to the Pink Underpants campaign, there was something about urban modernity itself that fueled the culture war and its implicit references to broader urban changes. So, as I mentioned, um, as someone who grew up in the city of Bangalore and who had also worked as a journalist, I witnessed these two transformations unfolding in a fascinating, if often troubling, ways. So, I used to attend press conferences by corporate bigwigs and high bureaucrats uh, and noted down their euphoric vision statements on making Bangalore a true global city. Soon I realized that the news media was not just a recipient of this discourse, but was deeply implicated in its making. So when I entered uh, the formal academia, I started my ethnographic research among journalists, news executives, politicians, and civil society members. Um, I sat through editorial meetings, chatted with news executives, visited sites where journalists socialized or observed and participated in some of the urban protests, And of course, did some content analysis of news stories to bring urban and media transformations in a single frame and ask, what happens when commercial news media expand within transforming landscapes of cities held in thrall to new linkages with the global economy? What happens to news as a cultural social practice invested in shaping public opinion when it finds itself in the middle of urban changes fueled by flows of global capital and rearranged regional capital? And these two questions, they guided my research. And when we start exploring this, the first thing that comes to uh, uh, face us is the limitation of some of the normative theories of press, prominent in Western media theory. So if you look at current scholarship on Indian media expansion, and of course, No study proposes a simplistic model, but there is a divide between uh, what a team of researchers consider as media enabled democratic researchers, which means expanding media leads to more democracy, and on the other hand, a more pessimistic account of uh, the hyper commercialization of media, uh, which is sharply termed as murdochization of the press, dumbing down of news, and capital takeover of the public agenda of once nationalist newspapers. So there is this divide, right, in the, in the evaluation. But uh, despite this difference in evaluations, the theoretical framework guiding many of these studies is the influential model of public sphere uh, elaborated by Habermas and specifically the ideals of critical citizenry holding the ruling gover- governments and markets accountable to the autonomous public. Mm-hmm. And this is not something unique to Indian media scholarship. Uh, reference to Habermasian public sphere model is, in fact, a normal practice in journalism studies. And no doubt uh, the public sphere model is useful as a descriptive and evaluative, evaluatory category. But as several critics have already argued, the ahistorical conception of journalism public interface fails to take into account the distinct trajectories of the press in various regions of the world. And it also precludes the possibilities of diverse modes of publicness and actually existing democratic practices. And here, of course, uh, we are reminded of Nancy Fraser uh, and Laclau on Move and uh, some of the recent anti-colonial epistemologies in media studies have in fact taken this critique forward. So I develop on this scholarship and I argue that the abstraction of print publics solely as rational critical politics, effaces the distinct histories of colonial encounter and post-colonial developmentalism. And moreover, in in countries like India, there are are also intense debates uh, around modernity and journalism. And these debates and practices are inflected by language ideologies and caste practices, among other things. So to conceive of news media as embracing the already existing rational choices of public in a pure act of representation, will actually obscure the varied social and cultural conditions within which print-mediated subjects emerge and get constituted. And therefore, it is important for us to pay attention to the historical formation of this field and the social and cultural conditions that shape news cultures. And these limitations, in fact, become even more apparent cute when we consider how, you know, urban landscapes are intersecting with news practices in an interesting way. And I believe uh, the case of the Times of India, where I've carried out the bulk of my field fieldwork and news media uh, in the city of Bangalore brings out these limitations uh, very clearly, forcing us to develop uh, different uh, analytical tools and different theoretical formulations.
1: <laughs> Thank you. So let's that's a good segue into talking about the Times of India because you, you 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 argue throughout the book, specifically in Chapter 1, that the Times of India really was a, such an important newspaper for understanding contemporary Bangalore. So I was wondering, could you please tell us a little bit about why it's so important and also what sort of organisational mechanisms drive this newspaper?
0: Yeah, that's uh, in <laughs> fact a very interesting question because um, um, the story is, in the book begins with the rise of the times of India in the Mm -hmm. late 1980s and uh, early 1990s. In many ways, in fact, the times of India is a microcosm for what happened to a large section of journalism in India in the decades of reforms and how news media were in fact, uh, was in fact, one of the first to feel the effects of liberalization. I would say that the paper was a harbinger of changes. First, first, it openly declared that newspaper is like toothpaste, right? I mean, it is like any other consumer product. Uh, Of course, there were commercial interests in the news field, but nobody really came out and said, look, this is just like toothpaste. Um, Newspapers are uh, like any other consumer product. And this was kind of different from the narratives of um, uh, newspapers as uh, vehicles for public opinion and so on. Uh, I was, in fact, very intrigued by this metaphor of toothpaste from a top ranking um, executive in the Times of India to beat reporter. Everybody was describing the newspaper as toothpaste, you see. So but it it was an important metaphor. And that also shows us how the newspaper was changing. And then second, it. started a very aggressive cover price wars, right? It slashed down the cover price and it introduced colorful page layouts and uh, new themes for news and brought the branding and marketing teams right to the center of news creation. And this is a story that uh, is familiar to many of us. Even in the West, newsrooms have been changing, news companies are changing their policies. But very important. Uh, The Times of India was particularly attentive to the changes happening in a city like Bangalore. Uh, As I mentioned, because of the city's newfound location in the global economy, there was an influx of high-tech migrants and people employed in ancillary or business process outsourcing companies, which uh, together had created a generation of workers with more disposable income. And the paper saw this as the new urban middle class and called them the new reader. So according to them, there was a new reader in post-reforms India. And this new reader of new India, according to them, they drove the shopping mall and IT revolution. They aspired for high quality education and they didn't like at all formal politics. This was the kind of you know, picture, imagination of the new reader. And behind the new reader, there was this new conception of the local as a global city, which was seen as cosmopolitan. And so the ideal inhabitant of this global city was mobile, flexible, economically ascendant, culturally accommodating, and very, very young. I captured this discursive shift and all its materialities as mediated desire. This was evident in the rapid rise of stories on real estate, for example, sparking desire to acquire plush residential and office properties and uh, the paper brought special supplements to um, you know encourage this sector and then there was this new phenomenon called page 3 journalism a combination of celebrity journalism and entertainment the idea was to generate a positive feel among the readers by celebrating personal wealth fashion lifestyle sex sports and consumption and to recast them as legitimate youth aspiration And most of the real estate and page three journalism, of course, uh, was also uh, paid content, uh, at least a large part of it. And finally, leaders of the new economy, the high tech economy in Bangalore, they emerged as the new visible face of this aspirational India. They were promoted not just as business leaders, but saviors who could clean up India from its corrupt politics and inefficient state bureaucracy and therefore the newspaper strongly advocated the need for private sector participation in urban policy and this set the stage for a new kind of middle class and corporate civic activism and the paper in fact took a lead in organizing many civic campaigns to demand better physical infrastructure in the city or better governance and this developmental and cultural vision of a global city uh, of course came with many acts of exclusion so I, I first called this discursive shift as mediated desire. And in terms of how it, uh, it was uh, getting reflected in the Times of India, you saw page three journalism, real estate news, corporate stars um, commenting on urban policy and also actively participating in urban developmental strategies. So this particular vision and the practice of global city, um, of course, had many acts of exclusion. And if we turn to the pub controversy, um, it should not be surprising that uh, the Times of India was, uh, in fact, supporting the Pink Chadi protesters, um, because for them, the liberal discourse around women's rights symbolized the youth spirit when ideologies of liberty and liberation conflated with those of economic liberalization. So there was this, you know, discursive uh, meshing of all these ideologies. But then the same controversy, the Pink Chadi campaign and pub attacks showed us that there was something else happening too, right? I mean, it, it, the, the news media or the, the story of urban transformation and news media does not begin and end with the times of India. For many regional language journalists, um, regional languages, of course, Kannada in Bangalore, pub culture in its urban form not only embodied a threat to their local cultural attack, Economy, but it also reinforced their discomfort with growing commercialization of news and the discourses of urban modernity peddled by English newspapers like the Times of India. So I'm not saying that there is a kind of neat split between English and Canada news. Certainly there are many overlaps. But what this signifies is a larger tension in the semiotic economies of news media and how they interlace with urban politics. Mm-hmm. And All this force of language ideology as the cultural logic of news, together with another important factor, caste practices among journalists. And we see all these within the Times of India group, because the Times of India group also has Kannada newspaper called Karnataka, And I capture these mediations as structured visibilities, which acknowledges journalism's fundamental mediation as rendering visibility with democratic potential, But structured through historically inflected forces and not any transcendental logic of communicative rationality or transparent act of representation. So, I'm arguing with the case of Times of India and several regional language newspapers in Bangalore City that there is a tension between structured visibilities, which is visibility as democratic politics where multiple publics become at once visible and legitimate, and desire to clean up cities with middle-class and corporate agency cast in the frame of consumption citizenry. And this tension between structured visibilities and desire, and none of them overpowering the other fully, uh, kind of addresses the puzzle that expanding commercial journalism in India has not really led to um, uniform market discourse. At the same time, it draws attention to systematic forms of exclusion driven by a large section of media Uh, with your seemingly non-ideological discourse of global city. So for me, the Times of India and the news field in Bangalore opened up this uh, particular tension that defines how news media are shaping and are getting shaped by urban transformation in post-reform scenarios like India.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. And that uh, all these these concepts, I I really really was taken by these concepts, even though I don't work on... On media myself, I could see them, I could see them working in many different other contexts. But let's, let's stick talking about the sort of the the workings of inside the the newsroom. In in chapter two, you introduce a concept that I really like, which, which you call patterned permutations. And this is to describe the innovations in in newsroom practices. So for the sake of those who haven't yet had the chance to read the book, could you tell us what you mean by this and what such patterned permutations do in regards to the relationship between the the private desires and, and the public realm?
0: Wow, thank you. (laughs) I I should tell you that you have read the chapter, so I'm so happy. Uh, uh, (laughs) um, Patent permissions. There was something interesting happening on the news floors of the Times of India. Uh, The paper uh, would invite uh, what it called city celebrities, right? Mostly sports stars and corporate leaders and sometimes senior bureaucrats. Um, They would be the guest editors, so instead of the uh, usual employed editor, uh, these city celebrities would be the guest editors, right? Or they would be as uh, they would be just guests on the news floor. So there are two, two or three different variations of this. Either they are guest editors or they are just guests on the news floor. And this visit itself would be turned into a news event in the next day's edition, right? So... This is not the same as saying newspapers are porous, that it is like allowing people to get inside the news floor. That's different, right? Um, uh, There was something distinct about the porosity of newsrooms. It was intentional, planned, and patented. And therefore, I call them patent permeations. Not everyone, in fact, had the privilege to be a guest. Uh, And if you have to enter uh, newspapers like the Times of India and other newspapers, you have to really write your name on a big uh, logbook ledgers and security you have to get a badge you have to enter so new newspapers are not open but they are intentionally porous and uh, the chosen guests reflected the times of india's policy of liberalization friendly global india privileging public private partnership enterprise entrepreneurship and civic agency so All these stars who came, they represented the spirit that the Times of India believed um, was of New India. On the other hand, newspapers are are under tremendous pressure to be interactive in the wake of digital media expansion. And so they are trying to preempt digital interactivity. So when I try to ask why are they inviting these people? uh, On the one hand, of course, they represented uh, the, the kind of discourse about New India. At the same time, there was an internal logic uh, to make the newsroom way more interactive uh, because television and new media uh, were expanding rapidly. So in combination with its news policy, this active porosity turned into intentional porosity and in quick uh, succession, and following quickly into civic activism. So there is kind of continuity, right? First, I say that I'm opening up the newsrooms for these people because I want to be interactive. And this logic of interactivity created a space for the paper to be actively porous and also go out and do something for the city. And I, I'm trying to say that newspapers like the Times of India did not just report news events or printed what people said, but they actively organized city campaigns to demand better roads, flyovers, drains, garbage collection, corruption-free governance, and so on. So from active uh, you know, porosity to per- pattern permeations, you see that it easily leads to new kinds of uh, mediated city campaigns. And I argue that what we see today as middle-class activism Behind Ahmadmi party or candlelight protests against Delhi gang rape case etc and other forms of urban politics we see today has its roots in these early forms of mediated activism shaped by news media's internal logics of interactivity and branding and how they engaged a changing city Patent permeations have much to tell us about the recent surge in middle class activism so, that, that that becomes an important concept for me to understand how news rooms were transforming and how they uh, impacted urban politics.
1: Mm-hmm. Wonderful, thanks. You've already mentioned it. Used to work as a as a bilingual journalist, and of course, uh, Bangalore has both a healthy English and Canada media. Canada, as you've already mentioned, being of course the local state language. I suppose many people might imagine, especially given that the makeup of Bangalore with lots of North Indians coming to work in the city who don't learn Canada and just speak English, that the English language media is more for the elite, whilst the Canada, Canada language press is maybe more for the subaltern groups for or or something like this. But actually, as, as you show in the book, it's much more complicated than this, isn't it?
0: Certainly. Uh, I think there's clear division between English for the elite and Canada for the subaltern is uh, Uh, not only flawed um, empirically, but also there are serious theoretical problems with this uh, kind of divide. Mm -hmm. Um, In the book, um, I call it the difference machine. Uh, This is um, chapter three, Mm -hmm. right? I'm trying to say that the differences are commercially and relationally driven in the common field of news production. So difference is not something there that you are just capturing, but difference is dynamically produced as journalists engage and represent the changing city. And this is very different from saying that English and Canada media cater to different publics, right? And I use boudo's field theory um, here. And using this, I specify the relational aspect of bilingual media with three analytically distinct but overlapping practices within the field of news production, which means how does this difference uh, get created and how is this difference imagined, right? I'm not saying this difference is false, but I'm only saying that this is not about uh, some kind of difference uh, out there in the field that's very obvious and transparent. And how is this difference produced? First is the market logic of difference seen in reader segmentations and readership service. So you see all these newspapers were trying to understand new news audiences um, uh, in a very systematic way or in a scientific way. So they commissioned many survey market agencies to conduct surveys and then get them the details about how what news audiences expected to read in the different newspapers. So the first kind of you know logic of difference came from the market. And how many surveys, for example, showed there is a difference between Canada publics and English publics. Again, but they segmented the Canada news field as upwardly mobile Canada speakers or Canada reading publics, and then uh, people who are getting there. Et cetera. So there were just all kinds of segmentations at work, uh, which were inflected by market uh, logics. And second, and very interesting, is the set of imaginations and mental maps of readers that journalists carry. So it's not just the market and the marketing executives slicing and dicing, Mm -hmm. as they said, but these journalists were also translating abstract management guidelines into day to day news operations. Right. So this was this act of translation and imagination was very fascinating and this was of course also dialectically linked to the larger differentiated social field of audiences they assume to serve and represent and this is a point that i cannot elaborate at the moment but you can read in the book how this dialectics work uh, a kannada journalist in fact he was uh, he called it the mania and phobia of difference between english and kannada journalists so you talk to any journalist they say yeah there are differences right i mean there is something that the, ima- the, the imagined difference is doing for their news cultures and news practices. Um, to just give an example, Canada um, journalists would always call English newspaper readers as high-tech mandi or IT people, right? No. On the other hand, uh, English journalists and especially marketing executives at uh, English newspapers would call Canada publics as uh, steeped in the cesspool of local politics. Right. They were not interested in these aspirational images of in New India. They were just, you know, um, interested in uh, polit- political matters and a cesspool. Right. I mean, they had the deep disgust for the political class reflected uh, in their framing of Canada newspaper publics as steeped in a cesspool of po- politics. Therefore, you saw differences in the way journalists and news actors, including marketing executives, imagined their audiences. So this was the second layer of kind of creating the difference or articulating the difference. And third is a more direct application of and field logics, the struggle for difference and dominance within the field of cultural production. And this is played out through mutual references and antagonism among various news actors in the field. So here the reference is not to someone outside, but among themselves. You know, How do Kannada journalists look at English journalists and how English journalists look at Kannada journalists? A senior Kannada journalist, in fact, called uh, blamed. I must say, blamed English English language journalists as cooling glass journalists. Right? I mean, they they wore cooling glass, which means so many little details on the ground, the hardship is blurred for them. Right? They they can't see the real city. Uh, on the other hand, according to him, Kannada uh, newspaper journalists they saw everything. Uh, he called uh, called it sh sur- Shunti. No, it's an expression in Kannada. Sudgar Shunti it figuratively means every minute details, although literally it means ginger. So so, <laughs> <laughs> so these were the kind of you know, narratives about journalists that prevailed in the news field. And this added and the kind of antagonism um, we we saw, um, I still remember a senior Canada newspaper proprietor calling the Times of India as a British newspaper. Right? I mean, they are they are the enemies. They should not be trusted. So, uh, and on the other hand, uh, English newspapers also thought about their uh, Canada peers as um, selfish and. Uh, um, very schemy and steeped in office politics. So there were so many stereotypes and perceptions about the other committees. So this adds to another layer of difference, and the logic and experiential salience of difference between English and Kannada newspapers had clear implications for urban politics. And that's why we have to pay attention to this. And uh, in the book, you see how these different uh, ways of producing difference and experiencing difference. Uh, systematically exposed, publicized, and legitimized various publics within the city. So here you see that the idea of multiple publics, et cetera, Uh it's driven by this logic of difference in an in, in an interesting way.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what was really fascinating about the Canada media, and you, you bring this out in the discussion in, in chapter four, was, you know, because they're writing in Canada and about the, the land of the, the Canada people or Canada people and so on, this this feeds or sort of changes the way like the narratives of urban change in, in Bangalore play out. Could you please explain to us a bit how this, how this works?
0: Yeah, this is one of my favorite questions because I feel the um, uh, key argument uh, and the key ethnographic material uh, that um, builds this case is, My focus on the Canada media, Canada news media, Mm -hmm. Uh, Canada's symbolic functions in the news field and the broader urban field, I must say, are fascinating. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh,
0: Canada assembled the reading publics other than the English bourgeoisie and corporate votaries of neoliberalism as an intelligible category for the. Mm-hmm. And Canada was also a symbol around which different urban demands coalesced. So Canada was doing something within the news field, but Canada was also a symbol uh, where different, you know, urban demands could uh, come together. And uh, there is a very interesting and powerful semantic complex: Nadu uh, Nudi Jala Samudaya, right? The kind of land, language, water community, as uh, intrinsically kind of integrated as a composite whole. And this semantic complex, Nadu nuri jala samudaya is so central to the Kannada ethos as it intersected the news media. Uh, I'm not, of course, certainly romanticizing this or imbuing it with some kind of essence, but the dynamic ways in which Kannada enters the imagination of journalists and inflects their engagement with the city's latest transformations were, in fact, very fascinating. As a weapon of war in the internal struggles of the news field, Canada, together with caste practices, shaped news cultures that consciously subverted, inadvertently confounded, or simply remained oblivious to the neoliberal precepts of toy-style journalism and the global urban discourse peddled by them. There is, of course, an extended discussion in, in the book on how Canada and uh, English newspapers covered a large infrastructure project to build a new international airport for Bangalore City. So I'm trying to see how Kannada's uh, semantic complex of NARU Nuri, Jala, Samudaya has a real impact on how newspapers uh, engage some large urban infrastructural projects. And I took the case of the international airport. Um, This, um, you you see when Bangalore became an IT hub, etc., the old airport was uh, suddenly seen as inadequate. To handle large international traffic, so uh, there was um, uh, very, very, very intense discussions around uh, building a new international airport. And this airport was planned on uh, 1,700 hectares of prime agricultural land on the city outskirts, and this affected close to 600 farming households because uh, they would lose their land for the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, the project was unique because uh, it was the first airport in India to be built on a public-private partnership model. So you see many of the experiments in liberalizing India uh, started in Bangalore City. So uh, when I when I was interviewing and talking to journalists, they frequently referred to this project as a way to explain how news media had changed in the 1990s. And also to show that Kannada, as, as a news ethos, they it prevented them from celebrating this international project, right? I I was really curious to see what's going on here. So aside from interviews, I also did content analysis of news stories in three English newspapers and two Kannada newspapers. In terms of volume of coverage and framing, there were certainly differences between a section of English news media modeled on the Times of India's policy of urban growth and global India and different other newspapers. And as we can imagine, the Times of India uh, organized panels and gave very wide coverage to emphasize the need for the project. So there should be no um, obstacle uh, in executing this project. Uh, Land had to be acquired quickly and efficiently, and the project has had to start quickly, according to this narrative. A Kannada journalist, in fact, once told me that uh, this project was covered as if it's a life and death issue for the city. So that amount of uh, coverage it got. A section of news media, largely Kannada newspapers, but also a section of English media, understood this in the frame of Nadu Nudi Jala, right? And therefore, farmers who were losing land became sons of soil. And in many other instances also, not just the international airport urban subalterns, so long as they are native Kannadigas, were also seen as sons of soil. And this gave counter-narratives to consumption-friendly, high-tech, and seemingly de-territorialized Bangalore city. So here you see the kind of uh, symbolic functions, uh, symbolic salience of Kannada in the news field. Nadu Nudi Jala Samudaya um, matrix of Kannada and caste dynamics um, for the crux of Um, the book's theoretical formulation of bhasha media. So I have developed, this is the second theoretical intervention, as I mentioned, bhasha media. Uh, Bhasha, I argue, is distinct from the widely prevalent theories of vernacular media, right? Vernacular, because uh, it's usually used as a synonym for the subaltern. You also mentioned it, right? Mm -hmm. And always in a subordinate position. And in the Western theoretical tradition, of course, it suggests the power of not being institutional. And uh, very often, if we think of regional language media as vernacular media, uh, we think of homogeneous, popular offering resistance to the hegemonic order. Bhasha, on the other hand, can be simultaneously subordinate within one set of power relations and dominant in others. For example, if, when you look at Bhasha news media's relation with the political class or the exploitative caste associations, um, you cannot really theorize Bhasha as the subaltern. Bhasha, in fact... Is inherently heterogeneous. It's impure and it has multiple power positions. What is important is the difference it produces in the news field, right? It uh, the, by through the imaginations of audiences um, that are different from consumption-friendly urbanites celebrated by the Times of India and other newspapers. So, therefore, this theoretical formulation of bhasha it talks about four interlinked aspects. Uh, of cultural distinctness, perceptions of temporal primacy, intimate address, and inextricable connections with formal politics. This this is how I differentiate that from uh, the widely prevalent theory of one-club media. Uh, Of course, I cannot give the details. I'll save all the details for those who are going to read the book fully. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes definitely and I, and I would recommend reading it as, as I said before I really enjoyed it and one of the Thank things I, and one of the things I enjoyed after opening the first page when I always like do these books for the podcast I say okay how many chapters what are the titles of the chapter and the, the last chapter the last um, full chapter chapter 5 the, the title jumped out to me because it's called Journalists are Pimps so uh, I, suppose <laughs> <that's> a, <laughs> I suppose that's a good question to, to ask you now is why
0: <laughs> why, why? <laughs> Well, uh, this this is how, in fact, an influential Canada newspaper proprietor described journalists, Mm -hmm. and uh, he he also looked very angry when he said that. You know, he was so disgusted. He said, "Well, I mean, you think of journalists as public service um, professionals? Not at all. They're pimps." And then uh, he was actually referring to journalists who brokered deals, created rifts, and spread rumors among the political class. And they did this to advance uh, the interests of their politician friends, and in turn, their own prospects. And therefore, we see this uh, uh, quite a lot in what we define as the Bhasha media, um, brokering deals and spreading rumors or relaying information, um, connecting politicians. So this is a you see all this in in chapter in the chapter on caste practices, right? So the dynamics of caste and politics. Um, how how they become dealers in, in in the political field. So that's why I would say that um, PIMS and such expressions in bhasha media should caution us against romanticizing or taking a very neat normative position on uh, the bilingual uh, news field. So we have to be a little more careful. And uh, as anthropology has taught us, um, see where you can complicate it, including narratives like the PIMS. <laughs>
1: That's good. So we've been uh, speaking a lot throughout throughout this discussion about the specificities of Bangalore's print media, but I'm sure that many people listening will probably be thinking through how this relates to context that that they're familiar with. So I was wondering, as a a way of concluding our discussion on the book, could you reflect a little bit on the ways in which your study speaks to the place of local media in what is an increasingly globalising world a bit more generally?
0: Okay, fine. But this this book, of course, um, there are two other uh, interventions uh, for broader scholarship: public-private uh, and uh, patent permissions, as uh, as opposed to chaos theory, etc. But I think uh, the key argument here is also about globalization. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, this book speaks to the dynamic process of globalization uh, in the post-Fordist era, um, when cities across the world um, liberalizing economies, economies especially. Uh, they see that the cities are changing and news media are d- doing something very interesting in these cities. Uh, Appadurai and Breckinridge point to media uh, as uh, something that impels the work of imagination, to quote them. But how, how exactly does media compel and impel imagination, which is so central to the current phase of globalization? I feel this book provides one approach to address this question by mapping, if I have to quote from my own book, (laughs) the diverse cultural practices of a news field in a post-colonial globalizing city, where the conventions of news, convictions of journalists, and deeply entrenched struggles for difference among news actors shaped and reshaped a constantly mutating field of contesting claims on the local. I've sought to show that such a news field its army of workers, its imagined audiences, its promise and pitfalls, and all the contingent nodes of politics they engage in the process are at the core of new linkages between global imaginations and rearranged localities and are thus crucial for any understanding of globalization processes. So therefore, in a way, it grounds globalization studies. It also looks at the mediation of globalization processes, and it also tells us how uh, journalists were also the recipients of this discourse of global organization. So, at three different layers, you see that globalization literature cannot forget and ignore the news media.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. Now, you. You mentioned earlier this is uh, this book is an outcome of your PhD. Um, research and you know, now that this book is out, I suppose you're working on projects now or you have future projects in mind. Could you tell us a little bit about those?
0: Thank you. Um, media cultures and politics continue to be my research interest. Uh, my current research is on digital media politics in India and among the South Asian diaspora in Europe. Uh, latest publications uh, have been on the rise of online right wing volunteers and anti corruption activists. Uh, in India, so I'm looking at how Twitter, Facebook, and other social media platforms are shaping a new kind of political enterprise, uh, what I call ideological entrepreneurship uh, among uh, net users in India. and this also speaks to of course uh, growing interest, uh, scholarly interest, policy interest, and general interest on how New media platforms are changing the way politics is uh, experienced and how people are participating in uh, political debates. So this is the space which is just uh, with new media expanding at such a dramatic pace in India and also the way uh, television connects with new media debates. Newspapers also borrow debates uh, from the new media, and new media reflecting the mainstream media narrative. So there is this, you know, polymedia context, right? So the way it it, it really brings about new kinds of uh, political participation is is just fascinating. So I'm trying to understand that. Um, I'm uh, theorizing digital politics as uh, some kind of, you know, globally inflected new media culture. And I'm looking at three significant elements here, online gamification, online abuse, and the culture of facticity. So these are all uh, reflected in some of the um, latest publications and also the second book I'm writing on digital media politics in India. And based on this material and collaborations with scholars working on internet media in Africa and South Asia, uh, we are also developing the concept of extreme speech as an anthropological critique of hate speech debates. Uh, Internet politics and internet governance in different contexts of the so-called global South and also at the European level, uh, which is the European Union, uh, are the latest research areas I'm pursuing. Wow. So it's all exciting, <laughs> the <world of> media, <laughs> uh, where all, all this is played out, um, the world of media, which uh, mediates and remediates our lives uh, in um, interesting, immediate uh, ways.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, and we look forward to, to, to reading the, the fruits of that research in the future. Um, There's nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you about your book today. So uh, thanks a lot.
0: Thank you very much, Ian. Thanks for this opportunity and thanks for your wonderful questions. And thanks for reading the book as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to New Books in South Asian Studies. I've been your host, Ian Cook. And today we've been talking about making news in global India by Sahana Udapa. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. And I hope you're going to check out the book for yourselves. Tune in again next time. ta